So if you have your Bible, turn with me to our text this morning, the entire Old Testament. <laughs> Great. I hope that you packed your lunch today for church because we're going to have an adventure together. Actually, do turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin at the beginning, which seems to be a pretty good place to begin. And I'll share with you what, what my goal is in the time that we have together today. You guys know how those Costco, you know, tester things work, right? They try to get you to try one so that you come back for more. You know, that's how it works, right? My friend, I have a, a friend who's a Chick-fil-A owner-operator in another state. And he confessed to me one time that he... Uh, had, I don't know if any of you have had these, but they have this little sandwich called Chicken Mini at Chick-fil-A. And I'm sorry I brought up Chick-fil-A on Sunday. I know you can't get it today, so I can hear your stomach growling a few of you. But they, they have these little Chicken Minis. And he is an operator. They didn't pick up the, this tray. And it was a tray of like 40 of these little sandwiches. And my friend confessed that as he was working on paperwork, he just started reaching over and eating these things, right? So like you're supposed to eat like four, right? And, and after he made it through the first 10, and then he made it to the second. There was a moment when he reached back and he realized he ate the entire platter of these things, right? This morning, what I hope happens for us as we look at a, a, about 75% of the Bible, uh, as we look at a portion of scripture that for some of us today is familiar, for others of us, we've never spent meaningful time in the Old Testament. I hope that that we in this time period, it's literally a thousand pages in my Bible that we're going to go through. As we go through this together, I hope that it's just a taste for you. That you find yourself hearing the truth of God's word in a way that makes you say, you know what, I want to go back for more. And I want to understand what it means for me to listen and understand what God has to say to me through the New Testament. We're in a series that's called Discover. And this morning, the title of the message is to discover the Old Testament. And I'll just tell you, I hate the name Old Testament. I see that name a little bit more like O-B-S-I-R-T. It's old, but still incredibly relevant. That's like some of you, right? Old, but still incredibly relevant. I think of, of this truth and the fact of the matter is there's 39 books in the Old Testament that they um, unpack about 70% of God's word. And today, as we look at this, I just want to remind you that there's, there's a myth that's out there. There's actually teachers, Bible teaching teachers today that diminish the value of the truth of God's word when it comes to the Old Testament. I'll just remind you, Jesus took the Old Testament very seriously. That Jesus, when he quoted it often, he said things like John 5, 39, that the scriptures bear witness about me. So Jesus understood it as being a part of the full counsel of God. And Je Jesus didn't come to destroy the law in his own words, but to fulfill them. So the law in the Old Testament, at times we look at this and we say, well, wait a second, we live in a new covenant time period and praise the Lord for that. We've all not, um, been aware of the book of Hebrews and what it communicates to us about understanding what it means to have the precious blood of Christ. But as we go through this this, this leap through, this sprint through the Old Testament today, I think you're going to see some themes that are incredible, that, that we're going to see that the, the Old Testament can give us hints and understanding of the truths of the New Testament, that it serves, it tells us this, that it serves as a tutor helping us to understand the New Testament and the New Covenant that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I, 
I love this fact, and I really want you to catch this. People are missing this today. That my God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we read about him, when we study about him together today, and we begin, you've already gone with me, Genesis 1, let's go there. When we look at Genesis 1, we're going to see the fact that our God is a promise-keeping God. The first five books of the Bible, we know them as the Pentateuch, um, and it really is a fancy way of saying the first five books of the Bible. When we look at the Pentateuch this morning, I'm just going to challenge you. We've got four courses in the meal we're going to take together today. Uh, And in these four courses, we're going to take to heart what Jesus said when he said to us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know what's great about that statement? He says, I want to give you a meal this morning. But Jesus, when he said that, he was quoting the words of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus understood the value of the Old Testament. And when we look at God being a promise-keeping God, the first course, our appetizer this morning, we look at Genesis and we remember these words in Genesis 1. This is great. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's beautiful for me to think of the fact that the universe has been created by a God that knows and cares about his creation. It's sustained by God through his loving and sovereign grace. And even through creation and it's uh, the reality of the fall of man, the flood, and the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we, we see this, this handiwork of God, not just starting creation and getting it started, but instead that God has continued to sustain his creation. And hidden in Genesis, in Genesis 3.15, in the moments right after sin entered the world, we get this hint of God having a provision for sin for the redemption of his creation. We believe that the Lord Jesus was the pre-incarnate one. He wasn't invented to deal with sin, but instead he was there from the beginning in our understanding of our triune God. So when we say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we recognize that he created everything, we celebrate the fact that he is intimately involved in his creation. The next book we'll look at is the book of Exodus, where we see Moses and his profound relationship with God. In Scripture, what we recognize is he had the privilege of speaking with God face-to-face as one speaks with a friend. And when Moses met with God on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, God came down in a cloud and spoke these words, Exodus 34, 6. It says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and I say, amen. That the God of the universe, even in, in, as he's around his creation, that, that he created perfect and we spoiled it in its, in its abuse of what he provided for us, what we see is that he, from the beginning, is a God of grace. In the book of Leviticus, we see these details of how life was intended to be lived from the perspective of an, a, a religious person, and especially in the context of the Old Covenant. And as we see these details that regard Israelites' day-to-day life, I'll just remind you that it demonstrates God's concern for something that's been forgotten today, and that is the term holiness. That there is a commitment that God has for his people to be distinct from the world that's around us. Look at what, what he says in the book of Leviticus chapter 20 verse 26. It says, you shall be holy to me. 
For I, for I the Lord, am holy. That, that's a fancy word. It's a church word, right? Let's be honest. Uh, we don't use that word that often outside of here. But that word just means set apart, distinct, separated on purpose for a purpose. And, and so some of you that walked into this room today, you walk in and you say, I don't know if my job in life is just to enjoy life. Is it to survive? Is it to make it on till tomorrow? I want to remind you, God has a purpose for you. He says that I am holy and I have separated you from peoples so that you may be mine. I've claimed you because of the fact that I created you. I designed you. I have a purpose and plan for you. That is the words of the Lord. In the book of Numbers, we follow Moses and Israel's journey from the foot of, the, of Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land in Canaan. If, you were, if this was a regular kind of road trip from the time, that distance, I've traveled that distance in Israel before. They say it should have taken about two weeks. You want to talk about making bad time, it took them 40 years, right? So um, that's a lot of bathroom breaks, right? Uh, they, they suffered through a time period of having to recognize something about the God that I serve. And that is, he is not always a God of destination, but he is a God of process. And as we watch this unfold, if you have time to study this, this is an incredible book, the book of Numbers, that it reminds us of God's provision. And I love the way it's worded in Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has, has he said, and will he not do it? In other words, he does what he says he's going to do. Or as he's spoken, and will he not fulfill it? See, God's promises, brothers and sisters, don't have an expiration date. Isn't that encouraging? That he's steadfast, that he understands what it means to meet us in the midst of where we are at. It encourages me to think of the truths of Deuteronomy that reminds us that God is leaving, leading his people into the promised land. The journey is painful. The obstacles for them are significant. And here, Moses reminds his people that they can't let fear stop them from believing that God will fulfill his promises. Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, Be strong and courageous. Be filled with courage. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And congratulations, you made it through the appetizer. <laughs> okay. Five verses. Now, I want to remind you that the goal in this is to have you look at some of these. For some of you, I have had such a great study going through this myself. It's been delightful. And I hope that for you, as you hear some of these, maybe some of these, you're going to say, I need to spend a little more time in that book. I, I want to remember that truth. That truth is helpful for us. The, the, first, the first point that we looked at this morning is that our God is a promise-keeping God. And that theme is going to flow throughout the rest of the, New Testament, I mean, the Old Testament. But the second point this morning, as we move on to the next course is a simple statement that I love to say. You've heard me say it from this pulpit many times before. And that is, if we take God at his word, we will be blessed. The books that we're going to look at now, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and go on. These are books that we put in a category historically called the historical books. 
And I love the book of Joshua. Joshua gives a wonderful perspective on the strength of God and how we can share in his strength. And there's this, this encouragement that we see in the life of Joshua, a man who obeys the Lord and, and at times in, uh, against incredible odds. Oftentimes, God even weakens him and his fighting men in order to allow God to be glorified. And I love this statement. By fixing our eyes upon God, we can overcome everything that life throws at us. Joshua 1, 7 through 9 says this, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. Some of the places that you go? No, it's not what the text says. The Lord your God is with you everywhere that you go. The next book in the books, historical books that stands out to me is the book of Judges. Now, you'll remember the book of Judges because it contains the names of people that we're familiar with, like Samson. You may know the story. You've probably heard the story of Samson. But Samson is actually a part of, of an intense book that's in God's word that reminds us of God's awareness of your and my hearts. And what we see is the people of Israel oftentimes would have times of blessing where they're experiencing God's provision for them. They rejoice. They find themselves finding themselves at ease and they end up neglecting holiness in their life. They forget God. They find themselves comfortable with their sin. And then what ends up happening is often another nation or another circumstance leads to a time of judgment for them. And in other words, God allows the natural consequences of their rebellion to fall upon them. And then what God does in this time period, which is beautiful, is that he provides judges. There's a number of them. Deborah is one of them. There's a number of names that stand out. Samson's one of them. They weren't always perfect judges. One of my favorite is Ehud and um, his experience with King Eglon. If you have time to study that story, God, God provides his people in such a way to remind us that when we rebel against him, God can still provide for us hope. Judges 3.9 says this, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And you know what they remind us of, right? The one that was the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The next book in our Bibles is the book of Ruth. I love the wonderful story of Ruth that reminds us that we are never meant to walk through the struggles of life alone. Can I say that again? You were never intended to walk through the struggles of life alone. And the beautiful story of Ruth is one where Naomi was a woman who had lost her home, she'd lost her husband, she'd lost her sons, she'd lost her job. And this poor struggling widow cried out in her grief to God and he placed Ruth in her path. And Ruth was a beautiful reminder of God's faithfulness even when it doesn't feel like it. Ruth said this in, in verse 16. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For you, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Some of you had this read at your wedding, didn't you? And when we read these words, I want to remind you that this story is one of provision of a humble servant being used by the Lord to care for the needs of another person. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Do you see God's relentless pursuit of his people, even those who've been neglected and lost 
in society. This brings us to First and Second Samuel. Uh, if you want to talk about action, these are some books that contain action. Are you guys falling asleep yet? If you are, you need to check out these books because there's some really um, encouraging, interesting things that happen here. But I'll just remind you, in the book of First Samuel, we see the appointing of the first kings of Israel. And in fact, Israel was looking around and they were jealous of other nations that had kings. So they found the tallest, most handsome guy that looked like a good king. Uh, his name happened to be Saul, and he turned out to be a pretty lousy king, didn't he? So they appointed someone who looked the part. Meanwhile, while he was going through his tragic reign, God was raising up a man who didn't look the part at all, but would be the man we know of as David. And he would place his hand of anointing upon David at a young age. And David, we have the privilege of seeing in the later chapters of 1 Samuel, God's development of him as a young worship leader, as a young shepherd, as a warrior. Uh, we remember the stories of Goliath and his deep friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan, and, and this growing military strength that is built within David. And at the end of the day, we see this truth. And this is so encouraging to me in 1 Samuel, that God doesn't look at what you and I look at. When they appointed Saul, that was a misunderstanding of what God looks at. It says this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The Lord looks at our hearts. And so again, I want to remind you as we're looking at the Old Testament that God knows his creation, that God cares about his creation. In fact, I have the comfort of saying he cares about you, that he knows you, that you are a part of that design that he has on purpose for a purpose. And so when we look at these words, we keep seeing that God understands us. He understands our needs. And what we see in the next chapter, this is helpful, is that he doesn't just understand and isn't just aware of the good parts, the shiny parts that we want everyone to see. Some of you are confused by that. But God is also aware of the other parts of our life. In 2 Samuel, we see in the first 10 chapters, David's reign and things are happening uh, very well in the country in this, the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel. But then, for those of you who know his story, you also know that he would commit adultery, murder, would desecrate the things that were precious to him by his disobedience as he grew as a leader. And the consequences, we see the, the train wreck of consequences that happened. Let me just remind you, the God that I serve is a God that's slow to anger, abounding in love, but he does not always stop and remove the consequences of the decisions that we make. So when we say, every time we take God at his word, we're going to be blessed, that's the truth. But if we ignore it, we deal with the consequences of it. And King David, in his sin, and in his selfishness, and his ignorance, chose to sin in such a way that there was great destruction that was brought down upon him and on his family. But I, I look at all of this, and I, I think about these words that, that are so profound. In 2 Samuel 7, it says this, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
What a declaration of a big God that's worthy of our praise. In 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we find the succession to the unique life and leadership of Solomon, a wise king who would ultimately help to build the first suitable temple to the Lord. And he was a man who was unique, but what he taught us in many ways is those who remain faithful to God's word experience God's blessings. Those who ignore it inevitably suffer. And here, Dave, here Solomon was a man who brings the Ark of the Covenant into the new temple. And in that process, he says these words in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 23. It says this, or 1 Kings 8, 22, it says this. And he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their hearts. Oh Lord, there is none like, you guys notice we sing these songs a lot. You notice these words make it into the praises that we sing. Those, sometimes we think of those as New Testament truths that we sing, but sometimes we're singing truths that are ancient words that are still in, um, beautiful and represent the words of our hearts. Second King records a tra tragic time in the history of Israel. They're a divided people and they end up being run, uh, overrun and, and um, lose the promised land. And they're steadfast, but they have not left the steadfast promises of God. And they have some unfortunate leaders, unfortunate circumstances, but we, uh, we understand this truth of 2 Kings twenty two nineteen that says, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. And I'm reminded of the fact that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, that he will lift us up. That's going to be a theme over the next few books. First Chronicles, in this history of, of Israel, we see a highly detailed priestly perspective in exile of what it means to obey the Lord. And, and what we see is those in obedience, if they follow the Lord in obedience, they have nothing to fear. First Corinthians 22.13 says this, then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel, be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. I'm guessing that for some of us in the room today, we've experienced that dismay. And I think that dismay comes when we forget the fact that God is still intimately involved in his creation, that he's working to bring himself glory through our life circumstances. And the Old Testament reminds us of the fact that, yes, he is our creator, God, but he's also intimately involved in his creation. And I, I love this. You guys have pray, prayed this. You've declared it on behalf of our nation. Uh, but there's a wonderful statement in 2 Chronicles 7.14 that says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. So despite the fact that Solomon here, that God is speaking here to Solomon and the nation of Israel, these are instructions that you and I can take to heart, that God receives repentance from his people. And here we see God's ongoing presence in his faithfulness. What's beautiful in the book of Ezra is that through obedience, the lost can be found. Love this statement in Ezra 10, 4. It says, arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. 
In other words, there's this time period where there's a decision that, of what needs to be done. Do you guys remember we studied the book of Nehemiah together as a church family? And we watched that in just about two months, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And Ezra is the first part of that story where God's people are coming back to Jerusalem. And, and really what he's asking them to do is he's saying, it's time for you to roll up your sleeves and to get your hands dirty. And I just want to speak to you as a church right now for a few minutes and just remind you as we are coming back together that this whole church thing, this, this life together that we do is not a spectator sport. Um, it is not one of those things that we movie theater walk in and we, we observe and then from a distance. That's, that's not how God designed church to be. But instead what he designed for it to be is for us to co-labor together through the experiences of our life. So in Ezra, Ezra and then in the book of Nehemiah, People took it as their own responsibility to be a part of what was God's doing. And do you guys remember in Nehemiah that the rebuilding of the walls, it took just 52 days. They accomplished what was impossible because of the fact that they did it together. And I want to gently remind you, I want to encourage you as we talk about church and as we talk about the needs of our community and we talk about what it means for us to exalt Christ together as a church family, this isn't just about come and see. But in fact, my job, God's responsibility that he's placed on me is to equip you and I together to, to do the work of the ministry in the community that's around us. That's our job. And so when we read these truths, one of the things that we accept is they did um, a mighty work together. They accomplished some great things. And some of you, it was great. In the first service, I had a couple families who came up who'd been a part of Hope Church from the beginning, and they point at some drywall that they helped hang, or they're a part of the story at a different chapter in its history, and they're like, hey, we're back. Let's go. The work's still to be done. Let's do this. And I go, yes, let's go. And in that process, what we're saying is the Lord has never stopped asking us to be salt and light in this community, right? And so as we approach this simple truth, one of the things that was really humbling for me when I studied Nehemiah was that I had spoken about Nehemiah in settings, leadership settings, and, and groups where I taught about it from a perspective of leadership. And I think it's a profound book of leadership. But when we studied it together as a church family, which by the way, I love doing with you guys. I love studying God's word together. When we went through Nehemiah together, you know what stood out to me? Is that it was also a book about worship. And it was about restoring worship to a God that deserves our best, right? And so when we read past the time when the walls are rebuilt, we see ourselves saying, Lord, how do we honor you? How do we give you the worship and glory and honor that you deserve? So Ezra, Nehemiah, these books remind us that Nehemiah 8, 10 says it like this. I love this. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's where we find our strength. When we're emptied out, when we don't know what tomorrow's going to look like, the joy of the Lord is my strength. There, there's a purpose behind this. There's a goal that the Lord has for us. In the next book, Esther, for those of you who haven't studied this in a while, this is a, a beautiful book. It's profound. This, this precious young woman, Esther, was found in exile in Persia, and her adopted father, Mordecai, was a man who was a part of the exiles that were in that part of the world, and there was a great threat to God's people that were in that area. And and I love the fact that God chooses to take the most unlikely of servant leaders to step up and to, to be a part of his mission to reach and protect God's people at that time. Mordecai, who himself was at great risk, said to her these words in Ezra 10.4, and I think it applies to many of us in this room, arise, for it is your task 
and we are with you. Be strong and do it. In other words, God made you for such a time as this. Your job in life, church family, is not just to consume and enjoy. It's not just to show up. It's not just to be a part of the gallery. But instead, what God has asked for you to do is to be an active participant in the mission that God's called you to do. And what we see in these powerful books is that they say that he wants to use our best for his glory. So, so congratulations, you made it through the second course. Are you guys still alive out there? A few of you are? Okay, that's good. All right, the, the third course that we have for you this morning, the wisdom book. This is like eating dessert before you eat the main course, right? Um, these are the wisdom literature books, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, Song of Song. In fact, uh, I'll tell you that one of these books was, um, was uh, so intense that there was a warning placed on it with Orthodox Jews that you had to be 30 years old before you read this book. Uh, when we look at some of the wisdom literature, what I love is that it brings in to the equation poetry and the way those of us who think through our emotions at times and experience life in a way that's personal and intimate, maybe not always logically, that there's a group of people that fit that category that God has a place for in his word. And if you've read the Psalms, if you've read Ecclesiastes, this existential book where he's wrestling with the questions that are hard in life, like it stinks getting old, right? Like that there's a part of this that as he says these things, what we see is God doesn't reject us in our questions, but instead he makes provision for us. We studied together as a church family, the book of Job. And would you say you were encouraged through it? It's kind of hard to say that we were encouraged through the book of Job. But I was encouraged through the book of Job because I recognized that he could say words like this in Job chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed. Do you guys remember that was one of the afflictions that Job had, that his skin was wasting away? Yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, my heart faints within me, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Can you say that amidst your suffering? You understand, that's not, everything's going great. I got it all figured out. Everything's going just according to plan, for I know that my Redeemer lives. No, it's when stuff's falling off of you, when you the diagnosis is tragic, when it's difficult, when you've lost what's precious to you, that he's able to declare, for I know that my Redeemer lives. It's encouraging to me. You know, there's 150 Psalms recorded in Scripture, some of them longer than other entire books of the Bible. And I want to encourage you, it wasn't just written by King David, many of them were, but they articulate hope, they articulate wrestling with God, they articulate a sincerity of faith that I hope and pray is your story. And so when we quote confidently Psalm 23, Yea, the, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. When we declare that in the valley of the shadow of death and we say that we fear no evil, that can be your story. That can be your truth. That can be your reality. And, and I love the fact that, that God has provided for us the Psalms that allow us to see life through the lens of practical experience and application. It brings us to Proverbs, and it's an amazing book. A, a dad who's encouraging his, his son how to live. A, uh, practical truths. We, we say the word common sense, right? You guys use the word common sense and common sense isn't that common anymore, is it? You notice that? That, that? that Proverbs is filled with practical truth to live by. 
And probably the most profound version of that is in Proverbs 1.7 when he says, The fear of the Lord, the respect of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Isn't that profound? He's saying something that I believe is accurate and honest. And he's saying that is where we find true dependence upon the Lord, the fear of the Lord, honoring the Lord, listening to the Lord. The book of Ecclesiastes written by what we know of as the, the wisest man to ever live. Solomon, it, com, it, pro, it contains profoundly practical truths reminding us that nothing but God can satisfy our deepest needs. He has chapters about getting old. He has chapters about what it means to enjoy life in the times when it feels much less enjoyable than at other chapters in our history. And I love this truth of Ecclesiastes 12, 13. It says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's our job, is to honor the Lord, to obey him, to trust him. And it leads us to Song of Solomon, also written by Solomon. And um, I will tell you that this book, it came with a little asterisk next to it, that you, in, in early days with Orthodox Jews, you would have to be 30 years old if you were a single man to read this book. It's intense, it's honest, it's sincere about human sexuality, but it's not vulgar. And I'll just remind you that God's book contains this truth part of the, partially because marriage works. Did you know that? Uh, marriage works. It, it is something that's a gift from God. But I'll also tell you, if my wife were here, she said a hearty amen in the first service, but it takes work, right? That marriage works, but it takes work. And when Solomon wrote about the intimacy of marriage, he, he said this kind of poetic language in Song of Solomon 2.15. He says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. You know what he's saying there? Is he's saying there's things that want to creep in and to destroy the intimacy of all of the marriages that are here in this room. That there's things that want to creep in and steal away from what God has designed. And so, yes, marriage works. It takes work. And for some, they're not willing to pay the price for that. And it's devastating on their relationships. I just want to remind you as we come up to the fourth course, course this morning, I want to encourage you, you're almost there, way to go. Um, the fourth course this morning, I remember, so we're kind of looking at this from a bird's eye perspective and uh, we, we had this experience when we, I was supposed to go speak on Easter at a church in the Bahamas, we used to pastor there and I know, I have heard it, suffering for Jesus, we get it, right? So, um, but, but my family and I were supposed to fly to Nassau and then to go to an out island by boat and we were excited about it all packed up and um, we found out that the, the waves were too rough and so we weren't going to be able to make it by boat to the island that we were supposed to go to and it was uh, the night before Easter and they wanted us there. So they sent a plane to pick us up. Now I did not book this plane and, and I'll be honest with you, when I think of planes, I'm thinking like beverage carts and um, stewards and stewardesses and you, you know what I'm picturing. This was a six-seater plane and um, I am not joking when I say that guy with the pilot was outside with a bike pump pumping up one of the tires before we took off, right? So, so oh, this is going to be fun, right? So he did actually let me fly a little bit, which is awesome. But um, so we, we made it up there. We're flying around and, and we're seeing places that were familiar to us. We'd lived there for several years, but we're seeing them from a completely different perspective. 
And it was incredible for us to see. One, one thing that happened that cracked me up is that he, um, he flew really low o- over the, um, the place where we were supposed to land. And he said he was just making sure that there were no goats on the runway. Isn't that nice of him? You know? so, so, um, and we landed safe. Everything was fine. And then I saw him in the corner of my eye, you know, pumping up the tire again so he could get back home. You know, sometimes looking at things from a different perspective allows us to to piece it together in a different way. And so as we look at this final set of books, we call them the minor and major prophets. Um, This minor and major is not a statement of value. It's just a statement of size. Some of these, um, not not their body mass index, but uh, the amount of text that's written about them. And so there's major and minor prophets. And we're going to look at at several of these. I want to fly through these. Um, And as we talk about this final course, I'll just remind you of the fact that God was working, has been working from the beginning of creation to draw creation to him, to unravel his plan of redemption on behalf of his people. And if you've ever studied the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was a book that was written some 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. And on almost every page or in each chapter, there's, there's sections where you see these descriptions of what would be the very description of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah in this prophetic nature describes the virgin birth of Christ, the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, the Lord's sacrificial death, his return to claim his own uh, later in the book because of the, these and so many other Christological texts in Isaiah. It stands as a reminder to us that God understood what he was doing 700 years before the prophet would ever, uh, the Lord Jesus would ever walk to the, onto the earth. And we see this, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And I gave, give that a hearty amen. You know, Jeremiah, the next book, um, reminds us that even though we're far away from God at times, God is at work drawing us near to him. He was the suffering prophet, the one who for 40 some years had to encourage people who were ignoring his message to repent, and it was a difficult task But in Jeremiah 31, 31, we see this truth. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Lamentations, this is great. The original Hebrew for this, we don't use the word lamentations very often. But, but in, the, in the original Hebrew, it was a word that we could translate as like, alas, or how did this happen? And the lamentations part of this is us declaring, what is going on? And I'll just remind you as you study this, that sin always separates. Then it describes a person who's puzzling over the results of evil and the reality of suffering. But what, what is so encouraging to me is to hear these words recorded in Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Can I just read that again? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. I'm not going to sing it for you. I know you guys, you guys know the song. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 
That takes lamenting to a whole different level when a person stands back and says, I'm suffering, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. Ezekiel reminds us that the lost can be found if they seek God. Daniel, the incredible book, reminds us that God is in control even when it doesn't feel like it. And you know that there's prophecies where you remember some of the great stories like Daniel and his lion's den and the rejection of the food that was so prevalent in the, the culture that he was living, living in in order to obey and honor the Lord and his obedience to pray to the Lord faithfully. But I just, I just love this description that God is working out his story to bring himself glory and honor. And it was an ancient story that has a present reality for each of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that Hosea reminds us. This is a tough book, by the way. Hosea, do you guys know the story of Hosea? Some of you have read it. Um, so Hosea reminds us of what it feels like to be our God. And I'll tell you the story. Hosea is a book that's really a tragedy where what God asked this prophet Hosea to do was to marry a woman who was a prostitute. And the idea that he wanted to communicate to God's people in this tragedy was what it feels like to love someone who rejects your love. What it feels like to have someone who you care about, who chooses to ignore that. And God wanted his prophet to be able to articulate the fact that that is what it looks like when we reject the loving kindness of the Lord. When we sin as if he'd never died for us. When we act as if we're not his own possessions. And that, that story is one that, that right in front of us, as painful as it is, God's ways are best and we'll either choose to walk in them or we'll hurt ourselves stumbling over them. The, the way it's worded in Hosea 14, 9, it says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them for the ways of the Lord are right, but the transgressors stumble in them. They trip in them. They get hung up in them. Joel addresses a time in history when a plague of locusts completely obliterates Judah. Does that sound familiar? The plague of locusts, you know? Uh, here, the, um, you guys didn't even get that joke. That's sad, really. Yeah. No, the, you, you remember in history that there's this great plague and it wasn't a random event, but instead there's this this army that God is using to judge Israel for their disobedience. It's a hard book. But in, in Joel chapter 2, 32, it says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. I'll zoom through some of these. Amos reminds us that all people are precious to God and ought to be important to us. Obadiah reminds us that pride goes before the fall. Jonah, do you guys remember the story of Jonah as he's pouting in the midst of his calling that God has said, arise and go to Nineveh? He goes the other way. I'll just be honest. I'm praying for you guys that God would place a calling in your life. No fish necessary, I hope, but I'm praying that God nudges you and calls you, challenges you, pushes you to love his people, love his creation like he does. And, and at the end of the book of Jonah, we see him pouting because of the fact that He's lost his shade. He's sitting in the sun. He's discouraged. And yet what he's experienced is the great work of grace provided by the Lord. Micah, God shows us mercy even in our darkest moments. Nahum, God cares about our suffering. Habakkuk, 
God is, there's no place that is too dark for the light of God's grace. Zephaniah, God tirelessly longs to save his people. Haggai, the way it is is not the way it has to be. Zechariah, hope is not lost. And Malachi, the book that's going to give us and usher us into the next era of what God's going to do on behalf of his people. And we recognize the, the beauty and simplicity of the statement that hope is, in, is on the horizon for us. Let me read these words. It's great. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then when we make it to the gospels, which we'll study together briefly next week, we'll run through the New Testament together. We're gonna see John the Baptist saying, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Does this get you excited? I wanna encourage you about some of the themes that we've seen woven through these multiple books. And I'm sorry, this is just, just a hint. I haven't been able to camp out on any of these. I love them. I hope you are motivated to spend some time studying some of these, hopefully, books that are familiar to you, or if not, unfamiliar stories that remind you of his provision and goodness, his love for you. But these themes stand out to me when I study this, that, that God is not ignorant of his creation. He's not so distinct from his creation that he doesn't understand the struggles that we're going through, but he has constantly made a provision for grace. We, he is not running away from us. When we rebel against his best for us, we are running away from him. Amen? And so what we see as we study this together is he is not separate from his creation in such a way that he doesn't care about it, but he knows it intimately, and he's constantly working to restore his plan in the life of his people, whether that's through times of blessing, whether it's that's through times of exile, whether that's through times of great suffering. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's not just the God of the New Testament. That is the God that we worship and we celebrate together. Um, some of you are like, it's like Thanksgiving where you need a nap now, right? You know, you've, you've consumed so much. I just, I just hope and encourage you to spend some time, go back, mark up your Bible, spend some time recognizing that this Older Testament is incredibly relevant for the world that you and I live in today. And there's truths about it that help us to understand the work of the cross in ways that maybe we've never understood it before. And when we take that time to do it, what we can do is we can find that he knows us personally, he has a plan for us, and he wants us to walk worthy of the calling that he's placed on our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. I thank you that you promised us that it will not return void. And I thank you for these a thousand pages that are in my Bible that that in each, each book, it seems, that there's these themes that run through it, that you love your creation, that you're involved in our lives, that you know our needs more than what we do, that you're celebrating your provision, your goodness, and your grace. And I thank you and praise you for that, for being a redemptive God. I pray for each and every person that's here, that they would understand that truth. And as we praise your name together, Lord, as we close this service out, I pray that you would be glorified as we worship you. In Jesus' precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen.